We made it through our um, to the end of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> like I said, we, our, uh, one of our students here started with us 15 months ago, and he, uh, he made it through as well as some of you. But um, uh, we also have, uh, we we're going to be starting a new study in September. Um, I'm going to teach this morning, and then we have a couple of guest teachers the rest of this month, and then we, take, we always take Labor Day weekend off. Uh, we have a worship service that morning, but no Bible study hour that morning because the next week all of our young, our children and youth classes, they all move up to the next age level, and so it gives us a Sunday to kind of get some things uh, rearranged and set up for that. Uh, but this morning, uh, I want to address a, a topic or a, a subject or, or a doctrine, really, um, that I find myself talking about every, practically every week uh, in the counseling room at the church uh, with people both inside and outside the church, uh, the doctrine of sanctification. And so we're going to be jumping around a little bit this morning. Get your, get your Bibles ready and your fingers ready. Uh, we're going to be looking at, at different uh, passages. Uh, but want to talk about this issue of sanctification. Of course, we all love and, and, and relish the doctrine of justification. Uh, we glory in all that the Bible says about our position in Christ. Um, and recently, in, uh, in our sermon series in, in the book of Romans, uh, we've looked at that particular uh, doctrine and, 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 and all, of its, all of its glory and wonder, uh, our union with Christ, uh, the fact that we are, as, as children of God, uh, declared uh, legally righteous and just. We have been acquitted. Uh, we have uh, been freed, if you will, from the penalty of sin uh, in our lives, and, and we're so grateful for that. And there's certainly a place for that in counseling. Uh, it's not as if I, we don't talk about that. That is often a topic that we discuss uh, with people because they don't understand that. They don't understand who they are. In Christ, they don't understand their forgiveness and those types of things. But for those of us who understand justification, and, and, and we've spent weeks, like I said, in Romans thinking about that particular issue, there's still this problem of sin in our lives, um, the fact that we sin every day. And, um, and the doctrine of justification really deals with what God does about that uh, problem. And so I want to spend some time just uh, looking at this particular teaching and scripture, which is we won't be able to get to, certainly won't, this won't be exhaustive, but hopefully it'll uh, give you a, 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 just a more clear understanding of, of that particular thing. So uh, there's two, we'll start with just saying there's two main uh, meanings when we talk about uh, just uh, sanctification. Uh, the first main sort of, if you will, main meaning uh, of, of sanctification just simply means to be set apart for God or for God's service. Uh, interestingly, in the scriptures, this applies not just to men and to women, but it applies to even inanimate things. Uh, for instance, even in the Old Testament, you have the tabernacle being sanctified. You even have the seventh day of creation week uh, being sanctified. Uh, even a house, uh, even a house or a field could be uh, set apart, if you will, with the proper uh, Levitical ritual or, or prescriptions in the Old Testament. Uh, and then under that sort of broad heading of being set apart for God, you, had, you have really, there's, there's really a double meaning to this, um, this idea of being set apart. Uh, the first is separation from something, um, uh, particularly uh, set apart or separation from, uh, in most cases, just ordinary use. You see that a lot in the Old Testament and in some cases set apart or separation from 
uh, things that are, were considered to be profane or things that were considered to be unclean or impure. Uh, it's the idea of being set apart from sin in, in a holiness of moral purity, which is how the, this term sanctification came to mean holiness or purity in life. And so when we use the term sanctification, a lot of times we're just talking about purity uh, in our lives. So it's a separation from those things that are impure and sinful or common. Uh, the second sort of meaning is it really it's in a more positive sense, and it's a separation to something. Uh, it's a separation to uh, devotion to God uh, or the idea of something or someone being offered to or presented to the Lord uh, that the Lord may use those things or those individuals for His own service. Uh, in fact, the term sanctify is actually used of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself two times in John's Gospel. In John chapter 10, verse 36, uh, tells us that the Father sanctified and sent Jesus into the world. And so obviously it doesn't mean there that God made Jesus holy or pure as if He wasn't. Uh, it's just simply saying that Christ was set apart for God's service, for God's purpose and His intention and in, in salvation. Uh, Jesus Himself prayed in John chapter 17, verse 19, in that high priestly prayer. He says, For their sakes I sanctify Myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. So Jesus is saying there, I, I'm sanctifying myself. Again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not making myself more pure than I was. He's just simply saying that he was setting himself apart for, for God's purpose, at God's disposal, uh, that God would do with him and through him on the cross the work that was necessary for us to, for our sins to be dealt with and for him to satisfy the wrath of God and for us to receive forgiveness. Uh, you'll also find that uh, term to sanctify. Uh, you'll find that that's frequently used uh, in this particular way to describe uh, you and I as believers, as Christians. Uh, for example, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says there, beginning in, uh, we'll just begin begin in verse 9, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, there's our term, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. And so he says we are, we have been washed, we have been sanctified, we have been justified as believers uh, in, in, in God. And you'll notice that in this case, sanctification comes before justification. So he's, he's using this in, in, a, in, a, in a way that we don't normally think about sanctification, but what Paul's saying is that the Corinthian Christians were taken, spiritually speaking, out of the world, uh, even out of that sinful Corinthian society and set apart for God, um, that they had become the people of God and that they had been set apart for the Lord and for His service. That's why he says it, if you will, precedes justification, not as if it, it had, it's happening you know, we don't, 
like there's this big gap of time between these things, but he's just saying that that is the work of justification. That is what's going on. God is separating us out. He's making us his, his special and peculiar uh, people. So that's one meaning. One meaning has to do with just being set apart for God and for his service. But sanctification has a second meaning, uh, which isn't so much a positional uh, uh, meaning or, or emphasis, but really it's speaking about an, an inward thing. So it's an inward meaning, uh, not speaking about necessarily being set apart for God, but adding to that, that adding to the reality or the fact that we have been set apart for God, that something is happening within us. Uh, to make us worthy of our new position in Christ. That is to say that there's a, it has an ethical emphasis to it. So it's not, it's not just about this position that we're in. It's actually speaking of, of ethics and, and morality. It's what's going on within us. So positionally, we could say that we are regarded as holy positionally, but this second aspect is really emphasizing how we are made holy. So it's about that work, uh, that purification, that cleansing that goes on within us, which makes us conform more and more to the Lord Jesus Christ and which changes us into his image from glory to glory. And this is the more common use of the word when it comes up in conversation. Uh, Sometimes we refer to it as progressive sanctification. So we sort of contrast, you have this first meaning, which we would sort of maybe categorize as positional sanctification, uh, this sort of once and for all, God setting you aside for his purposes. He, he, he owns you, right? You're his possession. But then there's this second emphasis and meaning in Scripture, this talking about this work that God it hasn't done once and for all, but it's really a work that is ongoing in your life as a believer. Uh, one person defined it this way. It is that gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he delivers the justified sinner. So the person's already been justified. So God God is delivering, the Holy Spirit's delivering the justified sinner from the pollution of sin. He is renewing that individual's whole nature in the image of God and enabling him or her to perform good works. So it's this present tense thing. It's this ongoing thing. So he's so in that definition, he's using those terms. The Holy Spirit is delivering you. The Holy Spirit is is renewing you, and He is enabling you. It's not something that He's done past tense that sort of happened just one time. It's something that He continues to do. It is this continuous, though gradual, elimination of sin in the life of a believer, and conforming of the believer to the image of Christ. So the person is already justified. So we're not talking about the guilt of sin. We're not talking about a person being under God's wrath and his judgment. Not talking about the guilt of sin. We're, we're more concerned about, at this point, the power of sin in a, in a believer's life or the, or the pollution of sin in a believer's life. Not that imputed righteousness, as we looked at back in Romans 4 and Romans chapter 5 particularly, but we might say imparted righteousness. That righteousness that the Lord is, is, is developing and cultivating in our lives on a daily basis. So it's not the righteousness that's been credited to us, but it's the righteousness that is created within us and produced within us as Christians. 
So progressive sanctification is really God's way of dealing with the problem of sin after our regeneration and our justification. So he deals with the penalty of sin through justification, but this is about the sin that remains, right? This is about the sin that we battle with every day as believers and how God is, 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 is dealing with that problem in our lives. So the big question is how does that take place? This process of, of purging us uh, or, or of purifying us from the pollution of sin or making us increasingly conformed into the, to what we might say, the ethical image of, of Christ. Now, there are, there are many views regarding this. Uh, I hear a lot of those false views every week. Uh, I met with a gentleman just this, this week, at the end of the week. Um, that is in a heap of trouble in his life, spiritually, relationally, and his family, and it's predominantly because he's had an unbiblical view of sanctification. Um, I, I'm not con- completely convinced that the man is has been saved, that he's born again, but if he has and he claims to be um, a believer, he clearly misunderstands this and and, and it's, it's really made things difficult. And we're not talking about a couple of years of misunderstanding. We're talking about two decades of misunderstanding. Uh, so there's, there are some erroneous views regarding this for sure. Some, some believe that sanctification is something that is received uh, and can be received in a moment. Uh, that's, that's not biblical. Uh, there, those that, that believe that, 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 is, that sanctification is something that is done to us by God through the Spirit and that all that we have to do is to want it, to believe it, uh, to believe that it's possible, and to exercise faith. That if that's all we do, if we just believe that God is going to purify us, that he wants to purify us, and we want to be purified, that that's all that's really left up to us to do. All we have to do is, is to believe that if we ask God for it, that he will give it to, give it to us. Um, that is to say that they view it as something that is received like justification, Right, so they they think that if they just want to be pure in their life as a as a follower of Christ, that God is going to, in the way that He justified us, in a moment, God is going to do this work, and that we're not going to struggle with sin, that we're going to be victorious over sin, and, and like justification, they believe that sanctification is some kind of experience that happens in a moment, and that it happens completely rather than progressively. So they don't see this as something that is ongoing and developing in a believer's life, they see it as something that should be instantaneous and that they get, they get it all. Uh, others hold to the idea that all we have to do as Christians is to look to Christ, to, we use, hear the terms a lot of times, abiding in Christ, um, relying upon Christ in faith, and that if we just do that, if we just look to Jesus, if we just rely enough on Him, if we just abide in Him enough that the Lord will keep us from sinning, that as long as we acknowledge and confess our sin and keep looking to Christ and trusting in Him that God will keep us victorious. So there's, those, are, those are wrong views. Uh, thinking that we get this thing instantaneously, instantaneously, thinking that that's all we have to do as Christians is to simply rely and look and trust. Uh, it's a lazy view of sanctification. Uh, it was sometimes the, the phrase that we hear most often is that I, I'm just letting go and letting God. Right, we're just sort of sitting back, and we God is doing this work in us. Then there is the biblical view that sees sanctification as a process that starts 
from the very moment of regeneration. It starts from the very moment of our justification, but it continues progressively throughout our lives and will only be perfect beyond our death when our bodies are ultimately glorified and delivered from corruption. And we'll look at this in a minute more, in more detail. So those are some, some, there's some, a couple of examples of different views. That's, I would say, the most common thing that I hear on a weekly basis is this idea that, that God is going to be making us holy apart from our effort, that we're just supposed to be believing and trusting and that God's going to do this. There are also certain dangers, um, I think, as we think about this, this issue of progressive, progressive sanctification and what it is and how it relates to these other doctrines like justification. Uh, one danger is in isolating these various doctrines and separating them from one another in, a, in, a, in an unbiblical way or in a false way. Uh, for example, regeneration, justification, adoption, uh, sanctification. You take these kinds of, of doctrines... And one of the danger is that we so pull these things apart um, that we act as if one could happen and the other could not. <laughs> um, and it is right to distinguish these things. Uh, in fact, a lot of confusion comes when we don't, right? When we just sort of lump in sanctification with justification and we don't see the distinctions between them or even between positional sanctification and progressive sanctification when we don't distinguish between those things, that's where a lot of false teaching comes from, right? I mean, there are whole denominations, there are whole cults built upon a confusion of those, those different doctrines. Um, and it's okay to do that. So I'm saying it's okay to distinguish these things, but it's not okay to separate them. For instance, it is important that we distinguish between justification and sanctification, but it's a very different thing to separate those things because according to scripture these two doctrines have an inherent connection right so when you read a passage like Romans 8 and it talks about how God foreknew you and he predestined you and he justified you and he glorified you what you see in scripture is that the, you can't pull these things apart to the extent of saying that a person can be justified but not be glorified right or a person could be adopted into God's family and never be sanctified and so we've got to keep these things connected, and yet we have to strive to keep them distinct uh, so that we see the differences. Another danger is that we seek forgiveness only. Right? We seek pardon from sin, but think of sanctification as something that we may or may not seek out later on. So there's this, there's this you know, I would say presentation of the gospel that's out there that just says, that the most important thing is justification, and who cares about all those other things, right? You just need to be forgiven. But think about this. Doesn't it make sense for a true believer that a true believer would hate the very thing that separated them from God to begin with, <laughs> right? So it just doesn't make a lot of sense to say the very thing that got us into the trouble, our sin, the thing, the very thing that put us under the wrath of God, that once we are justified and forgiven, that we don't really have a big concern about getting rid of sin in our lives. Uh, or you can say this, that, that um, doesn't it make sense that if someone truly came seeking forgiveness, that they would be anxious to be delivered from the very thing that offended God and put him under his wrath to start with? So that's a danger that we, again, we, we don't see these things for what they really are. We don't make the distinctions, but then in some cases we separate these issues 
and it leads to that kind of living where people are more concerned about just being forgiven. They're not really concerned about being set apart for God. They don't think of their lives. They don't wake up on Monday morning and say, I have been set apart for God, and that should affect the way that I live today. That should affect me, that I, God owns me, He has bought me, and that ought to encourage me not just to, not just to have a perspective about my day, but then to actually to go beyond that and to strive to put sin to death in my life, to avoid sin, to, to mortify the flesh, to do all these things that the Scriptures tell us to do as, as Christians. Uh, a third danger, and it sort of flows out of that, is, is the effect that, that a wrong view of sanctification, uh, that the effect that that has on our evangelistic efforts. All right, the danger of sharing a message with unbelievers that is only concerned about giving people some kind of temporary, temporary relief and release, but doesn't press upon them the importance of sanctification. So it's, it's an evangelism that falls short and stops at forgiveness and doesn't equally emphasize the importance of being separated from sin and separated to the Lord, which should be the end of our evangelism, right? That men and women are reconciled to God and separated unto God, separated unto Him. And yet our tendency is to not start with God in our evangelism, but to start with ourselves, right? It's to start with our own problems, with our own sins and our own needs, But the primary reason that we are to be sanctified and to pursue a holy life isn't so that we can be happy or to get rid of our problems, but because God is holy, because we are his people and Christ died for us and purchased us with his own blood. You can see that. We we taught this particular book, Titus, if you want to flip to Titus chapter 2. We looked at Titus in detail months, months ago, a couple of years ago, and we looked at this passage uh, just slowly walk through it because it's so. There's so much here. It's one of those passages that just kind of pulls it all together in just a few short verses. But in Titus two, verse eleven, Paul says, "For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age." So he says. If you really understand God's grace in justification, then you will be denying worldly desires. You will be saying no to sin in your life. Then he says you'll also be doing this at that very same time that you're denying worldly desires and living sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present. You'll be, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So what he's saying there is that God saved us to make us um, God's people, but not just to purify us in the sense of positional sanctification, but to purify us in the sense of progressive sanctification. Because that's the emphasis of good deeds. It's like, well, why don't we do good deeds? I mean, that's not something we know that we're not saved by them. So it can't be talking about anything that preceded our justification. And yet he's saying the reason that Christ saved you is so that you would go on to do good deeds. 
You would practice good deeds in your life. You would say no to sin. You would battle with sin, fight with sin, abstain from sin, and that you would pursue the Lord and that you would strive for holiness and that you would do good deeds. That is why Christ saved you. Not just to forgive you. This isn't just about that. That had to happen, right? That had to happen before you could do these things. But these things were all sort of a package deal, if you will. And there's other passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the one we just looked at, if you go down to verses 18 down to verse 20, he talks about this, the reason why you should flee immorality is because you are a possession of the Holy Spirit, right? Your body doesn't belong to you anymore. Your body belongs to the Lord, right? Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit there, he says. So we don't belong to ourselves, which means we have no right to a sinful life. We don't have a right as a, as a Christian to persist in sin and to pursue sin. Uh, and that is the way we need to approach this, this subject of sanctification. So the moment that I received the divine nature, according to Peter, the moment that I was born again, something came into me that is going to separate me from sin. That is to say the Spirit of God is in me, weaning me, from the world and weaning me onto the Lord, right? A dependence, a walk of faith in Christ. The moment that I was saved, I received the Holy Spirit and this process of separating me began. Or to say it another way, I cannot be regenerate without this process of sanctification already starting to work within me. So, I'm regenerated, I'm born again, adopted, justified. At that moment, that by, by definition in that moment, I was set apart for God. But then there's this, that's the beginning of a process. <laughs> so I am positionally set apart, but that's the moment in which this process begins and it continues to unfold throughout your Christian uh, life. So how does, it, how does it happen? How does it take place? How does sanctification proceed within us? Uh, because in some of these doctrines, it's clear that God alone is the one who acts, right? For, for example, in regeneration, we do, we do nothing, right? We're dead in our sins. It is entirely the action of God. Justification, likewise, we do nothing at all except believe, right? So we're saved, we're justified through faith, but God is the one who pronounces us to be just. God is the one who pronounces us to be Righteous. The same same is, uh, applies to uh, our adoption, and even when we're talking about repentance and faith, the Scripture teaches us these things are gifts from God. Right. That is to say that we would never believe on Christ without the initial movement of God. We would never do it. But when we look at the doctrine of sanctification in the Scriptures, specifically that process of growing in our faith and purity. And growing in Christ's likeness, what we find is that we are active participants in the process. We are very much a part of the process. So when we consider the question, how is this work of sanctification carried on in us, we start by saying that it is definitely the action of God. It's definitely the action of God. For example, you can go through the New Testament, you can say it's not just... 
It's not just God does this. You actually see the entire Trinity involved in this this act, right? The Father sanctifies us. You have passages that point to that. The Son sanctifying us. The Bible teaches that the Spirit of God is sanctifying us. So it's clear this is God's work. It is God's intention. It is His purpose. Something that He is doing in every person that He has separated unto Himself. But sanctification is also something where we are called to activity. Which means that when it comes to the problem of sin in our daily lives as Christians, looking passively to Jesus or abiding in Him, thinking that all of the work is done in us and for us, just isn't effective because it just isn't biblical. So if that's what we think, we just say, it's all, it's, the Lord does all of this and I don't participate and I'm not active in this, you're not going to grow the way you should be growing. You're not going to deal with sin in your life the way that God intends for you to deal with sin. On the other hand, this work of sanctification isn't all up to us as if the activity of God, now that we have been justified and forgiven, is somehow not happening and that everything is on our shoulders. So we're not going to run on the other side and say, it's all us, right? God doesn't have anything to do with our pursuit of holiness. He doesn't have anything to do with our battle with sin. This is, this is all on our shoulders. It has nothing to do with God. So the question is, how do you avoid that imbalance? I mean, where, where do you find, how do you strike the balance between those things? And I think there's a passage that is extremely helpful at addressing this question. If you turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Starting there, we'll just, pick, we'll just begin at the beginning of the chapter there, verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves and do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he sort of, this sort of extended him sort of uh, to Christ, talking about really, again, a great summary of, of the incarnation and, and the purpose that, that Jesus had, that, in, that intention, that commitment that Jesus had while he was walking this earth, where he was ultimately headed, his determination to go there, and then what, the way God honored him as a consequence of that, of his full obedience. Paul doesn't sort of, even though we go to this passage a lot of times to talk about the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ and, and Christ's ministry and, and his cross work and all of that, 
Paul's purpose is really to illustrate what he wants the people to do, right? So he's not trying, and he's not, this isn't written so that he gives us this, hey, by the way, let me just time out and give you a theology of Christ. His point is to say this is what, this is what Christ did, and, and we ought to be emulating him. Because the thing that Paul's addressing down in, later in the chapter, and he even mentions it, this issue of being of the same mind and the same love united is because he's dealing with compla- complaining and grumbling and disunity in the church. And so he puts up the example of Christ to say, live the way that Christ lived, right? Completely humble, completely a servant, completely obedient to the Father's will. You have that attitude in you, and we'll solve the problems going on in the church, right? So he, he gives this extended hymn of praise to Christ, and then he kind of returns to this concern that he had. He actually mentions it back in chapter 1, verse 20, 27, the concern whether or not Paul would ever make it back to them, because Paul's in, in jail, and so Paul's hundreds of miles away from these people, and he mentions this back in 127, where he says, conduct yourselves in a manner, manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit. And so Paul takes, he, he goes back to that concern. He takes this example of Christ and immediately applies it to the problems of the Philippian church. And in doing that, he says this in verse 12. This is chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he encourages the believers to work out their salvation, and then he gives them a reason for doing that in verse 13. But Paul says here in verse 12, essentially, he, I think what he's doing is he's just re- revealing to us that he had a very close relationship with his church. Um, a very special, very personal relationship with the church at Philippi. Philippi. He loved the church. The church loved him. And the reality is they were very concerned and even dejected by the fact that Paul was in prison. And some of them may have started to think that without Paul, that they couldn't live the Christian life. We can't do it without Paul. I mean, Paul led us to the Lord. Paul taught us all of these things. Paul's way over there. And Paul's even saying, I, I have a concern. I want to come back to you, but I'm just not sure that I'll make it back. And so what Paul basically says is, don't think for a minute that my presence or my freedom is essential to your living the Christian life. In no way is your faith going to end because I'm in prison and can't come to you. Because this is not a human enterprise. This isn't just something that that Paul started and that Paul, because he started it, has to finish it, right? He says, you've been given the gift of salvation and the one that is essential to you is with you. The one that you need is there. This is his gift. Uh, You have the gift as much as I have it. So Paul's saying, it's not like It's not like I have something that you don't have, right? You have this. God is at work in you. In fact, he had already told them back in chapter 1, verse 6, right? He said that God is the one that started this, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So Paul says, listen, you have it as much as I have it, and what I want you to do, whether I come or not, is to work it out. Because you have everything necessary. 
I want you to work that salvation out whether I return to you or not. And the thing that Paul emphasizes is that they need to have an attitude of obedience. You need to be obedient. In fact, he mentions this, right, that they had obeyed when he was there. But he says, um, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, now much more in my absence. He's saying, listen, don't, don't let my being there or not being there affect that, right? You need to continue to be obedient and ties back into this statement back in verse 8 that Christ was being found in appearance as a man but humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. So Christ is their example. He's saying you need to continue to have even more so now that I'm gone an attitude of obedience, not so much to Paul but to the Lord. So he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now notice Paul's not exhorting them to produce their own salvation, right? Or to arrive at their salvation. He never says for them to work at it. He never says for them to work for it. And he never says for them to work work up their salvation, right? But rather to work out the salvation that they have already possessed. So he's saying, you're already saved. You're already justified. You're already adopted. In fact, positionally... You've already been sanctified, but now you need to be obedient, right? So his whole argument from the beginning of this letter is that they, they, are, they are Christians, not that they need to become Christians. They are already justified, but they need to continue to work out the spiritual life that they have received by grace. They were to apply, if you will, their salvation to the problems of selfish ambition and strife and egocentric actions that divided the church. They were to live consistently, if you will, with their salvation, being true to God's purposes in their life, of them being set apart for Him and set apart from sin, handling the gift of salvation with care, conducting their lives with seriousness and a reverence for the Lord, living with sober obedience, with reverence and godly fear, with humility and vigilance and circumspection. So by your own efforts and working and striving, you can never make yourself a Christian. But because, and, and only by the, grace, by the grace of God, you have become a Christian, then you must work with all your might and with all your energy and all your effort that you can command to encourage what God has given to you to grow and develop. And tying back into that previous section to manifest the same obedience which was seen in our Lord and and utter and absolute submission to the will of God. To discern the subtleties of the world, to discern the weakness of our own flesh, the power of sin, to understand God's holiness and to steer away from those things that are opposed to God, to know the word of God, to walk in in God's ways, to strive to please Him in everything. Work out your salvation. But then he says, you could not do that if God did not work in you first. And he does work in you in order that you may work it out. Verse 13, right? For, for it is God who is at work in you. So he says, look at your own life. Why are you, why are you where you are today? Why are you a child of God? Why are you a Christian? All right, hands down, it's God's work. 
Okay, you are a Christian today because of God's work. God the Spirit came to you, arrested you, pulled you out of the pit in the mire, made you to think, made you to ask certain questions. He is the one who gave you certain views of your own life and certain views of your own heart and of himself. He's the one that convicted you of sin. He is the one that awakened you and quickened you. He is the one who came even when you were unconcerned. He began to interfere with your life. Right, Even when you were going the other direction, He is the one that disturbed you. He's the one that came after you, and He laid hold of you, He Paul says in Philippians 3. right? That God literally grabbed you <laughs> and laid hold of you. But God didn't just start this. God goes on and He continues it. Paul, Paul says that by the Holy Spirit, God is at work in you in the very depths of your being energizing you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul reminds those in the church that God is working in them, providing both the motivation and the ability to do his good pleasure, which means that when they have the desire to do something good, when they have the desire to pray, when they have the desire to do anything in a realm of obedience to the Lord, that is not self-produced, it's not self-generated. It is God who is energizing that. He is the one who is affecting your will. He is the one who is affecting your work and your doing. And in your life as a Christian, God works in your will. He works the will to act and he enables the action. Not that he forces your will, but he does something much more gracious than that, right? He persuades your will. He doesn't force you to do something against your will. He persuades and influences your will giving you holy desires so that you will those things that would honor God. And your desire and ambition is to work it out because it is God who is at work in you. But you must do the willing and the doing. Right? Which is consistent with other statements of Scripture. Right? We don't have time, but you... Romans chapter 6, 11, Paul says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That, that is something that you must do. You must do that. Nobody can do that for you. You have to engage in the activity. Yes, the Spirit of God works in you, leading you to that recognition, but you are the one that is exhorted to do the reckoning. God doesn't reckon things for you. You have to reckon them yourself. He goes on in that chapter to say, Present yourselves to God, right? You yield your members to righteousness. Because you're slaves of God now. You're not slaves of sin. You are the one that has to yield the members of your body. That is something you must do. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 talks about putting to death, right, the deeds of the body. And Paul actually in 8.13 makes, makes it clear that without the Spirit of God, you couldn't do it. But having received the Spirit and with the Spirit working in you, through the Spirit, you must mortify the deeds of the body. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 13, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. These are all imperatives. These are commands. You have to do this. Colossians 3, 5, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. The ESV there says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 1 Timothy 6.11, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. In other words, Timothy, Timothy, you have to seek after it. You have to strive for it. 
He said there in verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he tells Timothy not wait to be delivered from youthful lusts. (laughs) He says, flee them. Run away from youthful lusts. Don't sit there and expect God to deliver you from those things. You have an obligation and a burden to run. To flee. First Peter 2.11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain, to stay away from, stop, to deal with fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. And maybe the one, one of the most important, 2 Corinthians 7.1, says, Paul says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So he says, because of these promises, because of the promises that God is with us, that He is our God, that we belong to Him, that that His His promised blessing to receive us and to be a father to us, that because we have been positionally set apart and sanctified, we should now progressively and actively live as those who have been bought with a price, pursuing holiness in every area of life, renouncing and putting off sin, in, in every form, replacing those things in our lives with righteous thinking and actions. And don't miss what he says there. We are responsible to cleanse ourselves. You cannot get around the grammar. You are supposed to be cleansing yourself from these things, to keep on doing the works of sanctity and purity, and to do them with reverence and devotion to the one who is your Savior and Lord. We, we have referred to this before as holy sweat, right? Holy sweat. Or you can call it aggressive Christian living. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to describe in Philippians 3, right? Verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which, for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Faithful, obedient, daily living and perseverance. Faithful obedience to the end. So so God works in your will, but you must do the willing and the doing. And it is both comforting and sobering to realize that God initiated the relationship and that He promises to continue that process that He has started. Sustaining your life, fashioning your life until the day when He produces a perfect product and you stand and you see Him face to face. But it is equally sobering to realize that nothing short of full cooperation with God's working confirms your personal salvation. So it's as if he's saying, God is working in you via your working out your salvation. You you don't separate those things. And again, it's one of those doctrines that we wrestle with. Our part, God's part, where did the two come together? I don't know. All I'm saying is that God started it. He's going to finish it. You couldn't do it without him, but you will not be saved apart from your obedience to the Lord. And again, that's not saying you're saved by your works. 
Do you see what I'm saying? There's a, you have to be able to distinguish those things. We are, we are saved because we are justified, right, positionally. But it makes no sense to say that a person has been justified but then goes on to live a life of disobedience. So what do we do? Well, we could sit back and we could think, is God doing this? What part is, what part is he doing and how much? Or we could just say, you know what? We, don't, we aren't told in Scripture to figure that out. <laughs> the Scriptures don't tell us to analyze everything that we're doing to make sure that we're doing and what God is doing and how much of it is he doing and how is he doing it in us. It's just saying God does it in us. What you need to be focused on as a believer is working out your salvation. So the Bible plainly teaches that God is working in us because he has saved us, but he is working in us in order that we may work it out. Uh, if, if all we have to do is to be sanctified and, and let go and let God, if all we have to do is to surrender ourselves and just look to Jesus, then the writers of Scripture, especially the Apostle Paul, have wasted a great deal of ink and time and energy arguing about this doctrine, right? trying to put this out there in front of us in saying that, that in light of this or that, then do this, apply this, don't do this, abstain from that, go do this, start doing this, all of these imperatives. Why did they say all of that if all we needed to do is surrender, look, and abide, or, or to sit around waiting to receive something? Now, you might say, what about those stories? Because I hear these stories <laughs> sometimes. What about those stories when a person says that they had this wonderful experience? For instance, they had a bad temper, they were entangled in some kind of sin, or they struggled with some sin for years, they couldn't get rid of it, and then finally they came to some great crisis in their life, they, they took it to the Lord, uh, they, and they claimed to have had some great experience, and from that day on they never lost their temper again. And I hear these things sometimes. I was struggling with this sin, and, and, and no victory over it, and then all of a sudden I just took it to the Lord, and you know it just went away. Well, of course, we, we don't deny the experience. I don't sit there saying, no, you didn't. <laughs> you know, I say, no, you didn't experience that. Okay, I don't, I don't do that. What I would say is that there is no evidence biblically that that kind of experience means sanctification. Uh, it may be part of sanctification, and it may, be, it may greatly help in a person's sanctification, but that kind of experience isn't in and of itself necessarily sanctification. Some other concerns I have. If that is the way that God sanctifies us, then why doesn't it work for every believer? Because what Paul is describing here is for every Christian, right? Every one of these passages that talks about progressive sanctification, it's not like Paul says, okay, for this crowd over here, or he doesn't say, now some of you are going to experience this, but others of you are not. He puts the burden on every believer that this is the way sanctification works, and this is your responsibility in it. Because certainly there have been those who desired... I've met people, folks, folks who have desired to be delivered. I mean, they have desired to, to be delivered from sin in their lives, but they never experienced that dramatic form of, of, of deliverance in their life. I mean, they struggle and they battle with these things for years and years and years. And if such an experience is God's way and, and sanctification works that way with regard to, to one sin, why doesn't it work that way for every sin? And then I would say this, I know of other people who can testify to that kind of experience 
who tell of how they suddenly dumped that temper of theirs or some feeling of anxiety or some other bad behavior or craving for a drink or a pill or whatever who weren't even Christians. So we know that's not sanctification, right? So does God ever grant that kind of sudden deliverance from certain sins? And I would say yes, He does. But we don't base our doctrine on experiences. We don't say, let's just survey everybody in the church and find out how they're growing, <laughs> you know, and then let's construct a doctrine of sanctification around everybody's experiences. We don't do that. We base our, our doctrine on God's Word. We also don't want to view sanctification as just the problem of a particular sin or sins, but as a question of our total relationship with God. Because sometimes we get so drilled down because we're dealing with a specific sin that we only view our sanctification through that one little lens. But sanctification isn't really an experience. It's a condition, right? It's like we have been set apart. We're talking about a relationship here, right? So this is my relationship to God we're talking about when we're thinking about sanctification. It involves experiences. It is helped by, in some cases, by those experiences, but it is in and of itself is, is not an experience. And it's certainly not a second blessing. It's not something that we're sitting back waiting for God to give us, to zap us with sanctification or holiness or some form of victory. It is the process of growth. And we don't go from infancy to adulthood in one big leap. In fact, if I had, if, if Jude, my 12-year-old, showed up for church today and had a beard, okay, you would not be, you would not think that was funny and you would think, you would say, you take that kid to the doctor, right? I mean, it's like, I mean, it'd be freakish, right? I mean, to see someone accelerate, right, in their maturity like that. And the scriptures actually take physical maturity and compare it in some cases to spiritual maturity. Maturity takes time and growth is incremental, And regrettably, sometimes our spiritual lives are marked by backsliding because of disobedience or a lack of full obedience to God's will. So there can be dips and plateaus along the way. Nevertheless, the general trajectory of the Christian experience from regeneration to glory is always onward. It's onward. Yeah, do we ever have seasons of doubt, disobedience, not handling trials and things in our lives the right way? Absolutely. But from the time that we've been set apart positionally to the time that we see Christ face to face, if you could start here and then where we end, there ought to be an onward, upward trajectory of growth. That is sanctification. Growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord, an ongoing cycle of sin and guilt, repentance and faith, forgiveness and covering, mind renewal and replacement, our ongoing transformation that is continuous throughout life but not perfect in this life which stirs in us a longing to be glorified, to be with our Lord, and for sin to be completely and forever eliminated from our lives, a longing for that moment when we will be delivered forever from the very presence of sin in both our inner and outer man, never to sin again at the level of our desires, thoughts, and intentions. And with a body that has been transformed, right? Paul says in Philippians 3.21, into conformity with the body of Jesus' glory. That is God's method of sanctification. It starts from the moment of regeneration, and it goes on, and it goes on. Every experience we get stimulates it, and we are changed from glory to glory, advancing and developing, more sanctified now than we were five years ago, 
and it will go on and on until finally in glory we will be perfect without spot, without blemish, inwardly, and our inner life and outward conduct will finally match our position. So we are saved, if you will, saved by God's grace through faith, God's grace working through faith, but we are sanctified by His grace working through obedience. It takes our most strenuous effort, but nonetheless, it is totally dependent on God's power. And if you can keep those things in your mind and heart, it'll keep you, it'll keep you moving, it'll keep you pressing, it'll keep you striving, always knowing that as much as you strive and as much as you put your energy into it, you, don't, you fail, you still fail, right? And you get discouraged, and the people that you look up to and teachers and, and preachers and people that, just like the church at Philippi would have looked to Paul and just say, listen, you have all you need for life and godliness. Does God use teachers and preachers? Yes, but you're not dependent on any teacher and preacher to assure and to guarantee that your sanctification is going to be complete because God is the one who began the work and he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Okay? Glorious truth. Glorious truth. Okay, uh, next week, Martin Indigno will be teaching, I think, out of Thessalonians. Um, and then we'll have two other Sundays, like I said, at the end of the month. Um, and then I'll be back with you guys uh, in September, and we'll be looking at Song of Solomon. So I would appreciate your prayers as I spend a few weeks here just trying to get ready for that, that series so we can make the most, most of that once we get started. Okay?